Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And Novak Djokovic has won number 24 at the U.S. Open. We have uh, missed you guys. U.S. Open, a busy time for the three of us. So uh, we are catching up for the first time since before it all began, when Novak was seven wins away from his 24th major title, his fourth U.S. Open. And uh, as a result, we have a lot to get into. Of course, the straight set win over Medvedev in the final, first and foremost. We'll also probably talk quite a bit about uh, the semifinals as well towards the end. But let's talk about the significance of the win. win. I think uh, there, for most of Djokovic's major finals recently, there's been something really, really big. Uh, just because of the slam tally and the case of Wimbledon, oh, the grand slam and maybe a little bit of like Alcaraz subplot. This almost felt more normal, like a regular major final where he was just kind of playing to win another slam. But I think the main significance was the fact that it, it kind of felt overdue at the U.S. Open, Amy. He returned to New York where he wasn't able to play for a while. So that was big. Um, he wasn't even able to enter the country. So that had some significance to it. But I think even more than that, for me, he's 36 years old and he had one of his best years ever. He won yeah. three Grand Slams. And the way that he beat Medvedev at age 36, for me, it was incredibly straightforward incredibly disciplined and that was the significance for me i like that about the discipline you can almost see that in the way the match point went it's like he had kind of a business as usual demeanor to him even though there had been a lot of physicality particularly in the second set um in the big picture i looked of course at my uh, longevity people and you look at people pancho gonzalez ken rosal jimmy connors they were all epic career guys but they did they had moments they had moments they didn't win three majors turning 36 <laughs> I mean, three that, and, and oh, and get to the finals of all four. Thank you very much. And and lose the Wimbledon final six, four in the fifth set. I mean, that's just, I don't know of Novak's years. One day we should stack up his three slam years and think about which is really the most impressive because this might be it. Yeah. I, I mean, compared to what it's 2011, 2015 and now 2023, I believe are, are the three. 21, well, 21. Oh, and 21. I forgot 21. And short, the one yeah. short. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It, unbelievable. I think obviously the the majors have become more of a focus. So it wasn't a 2015-like year where he was winning tons of masters and such. Uh, but in the context of him being 36, obviously, you, you have to kind of look at that as maybe the most novel and most impressive of of these massive, massive seasons. I I, I will say, though, as far as straight set wins are concerned, I do think this was a on the competitive side of of straight set wins, in in my opinion. Particularly just because the second set was was really up in the air, and it looked like some some physical questions were 
not not long term questions, but some short term physical questions were coming into play. And obviously, Medvedev had the set point. So I thought, while it was ultimately straightforward, as in the context of straight set matches, I thought it was pretty, pretty competitive. Well, when you have a second set that's an hour and 45 minutes long, and the younger opponent has a set point, and you see Novak more than once physically wavering whatever he was doing, I, I agree. And I think I wondered at certain points, who was it more important to win that second set for, Novak or Medvedev? I think Novak would have won either way. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and I kind of maybe texted that to you guys, that effect. Um, and, and what happened on that set point that Medvedev had? Novak came into the net and he ended up winning the point. And that to me is a microcosm of the match in general and why it was so straightforward. And he's an all-court player. He can beat you any number of ways both big picture and within points he can beat you any number of ways while Medvedev is an excellent baseliner who can beat you one way basically yeah it looked to me like at some point that Medvedev was thinking all right I'll just last here six hours I'll just out I'll break down his legs Gil, well, you were that was the plan I have no, and there were some nuances and some intricacies to it. Uh, I think the plan for for Daniil, and it started to come into play only in the second set, but it was get him tired, keep the ball on his backhand, where if he's very desperate to do point-ending damage, it's it's hard for him to do it against Medvedev. As great as the backhand is, it's just tough to finish from behind the baseline. Uh, so keep it on his backhand and then get the drop shot. Because when Novak needs to finish the point on his and the ball's on his backhand, that's kind of what he goes to and and cover it. So get him tired, play the backhand, cover the drop shot. That was like the three step plan to win. And from the baseline, it it worked. It worked in the second set. He lost because he couldn't defend against the serve and volley. And Novak had the the point shortening skills to overcome a stretch of time where he was losing from the back of the court. He still won the set. So I completely, I'm with you, Amy, on the volleys. It, it, I don't think he's ever, I don't think Novak has ever won another major final in his career where the volleys were so significant. 37 of 44 at the net. And again, we saw though, we saw this in Australia with Medvedev versus Nadal, the, the limitations of his forward, of his game and the forward part of the court. I'm not saying he should have come to net 50 times, but look how Roger and Novak and Rafa all made themselves better players in certain ways. And Medvedev, in a way, his strategy was more of the same that I've done for a while. And that's good. Instead of like, like, okay, Medvedev, play doubles, play some doubles, do some something, just some ways to improve that forward part of the court. Because you saw several points where you could literally see Medvedev backing up, which is very rare for pro players. But you saw him backing up at times intentionally. And yeah, he, I guess he figured if I can break him down and win the, um, win that second set, then I continue to break down his legs. I, I don't know that what stood out. This wasn't a match as me and Nadal, the final in, in, in the Australian Open that Medvedev lost to Nadal in five sets. That was a match where I felt, ooh, if you had volleys, you probably would have won that match. But this wasn't one of those. This was where I more key in on the return and think, 
wow, you really, you just have no answer for serve and volley on the deuce side. You hit a slice serve out wide against Medvedev and come in, which Novak did in Paris Bercy uh, throughout the second and the third set in that match over and over and over again successfully. And here we are two years later, there's no answer to it. It's like a, it's close to an automatic point. And it's, it's really hard, I think, if you're Medvedev, to just accept that there's going to be a tactic that's going to work every time against you. And, you, and you're still trying to win majors with, with that being the case. Well, right. And the quality of the execution matter. And of course, then Medvedev, does he see, does he alter his return position? Does he try to redirect his returns? Because yeah, wide. And then he goes, he's going, yeah, he's opening the court. It's, it's a right-handed version of the, of the lefty playing the ad court, right? He's just going right. wide out to him. And then here it comes. I'm going to volley into the open court. And Medvedev is standing so far back to return. John Macro did that against Bjorn Borg. So um, that's, that's yeah, I, I agree with you too, that volleying mattered. Medvedev's limitations hurt him more in the Australian Open final than this final. This is more, as Amy said, a showcase of Novak's volley skills. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the full match report on the serve and volley yet, but um, you said, uh, or, or he came in 44 times and he won like 84%. Um, yeah, 47, yeah. So, you know, if you think that you win, you know, around 50% from the baseline, most players win, you know, it could be a little more, a little less um, versus the 84%. It's just stunning. I mean, it's just stunning. And we can argue and parse that out about, you know, will you come in when when you know that, you know, you've got an advantage or whatever, but when the percentages are that stark, you know, 50 some percent versus 84 percent it's just a tactic that worked in this match and and worked really well especially when you're a quality volleyer like Novak is and has become and you can do something with those volleys you're not just like oh I, I made a volley and I put it deep or you can you can one two combo it or, or what have you so um just you know a brilliant strategy uh executed to perfection well, and coming to net doesn't win you just the coming to net has so many things in his first, it can win you points. Second of all, okay, the seven he lost, Medvedev had to do something. I mean, I always, when I come to net, I always, even if I lose the points, I give myself like a, a half cent tuition tax credit, you know, for having put the time to it. And then it makes the whole baseline rally, it, it adds a threat from the baseline. I need to keep the ball deep or else come in. And again, not that Novak was the second coming of Patrick Rafter in this match, but it just, does all these things. It alters, like Gil pointed out about the return, how you go about returning, because now the net's a factor, many things. One of Medvedev's calling cards is he barely misses returns, even first serve returns. He puts them back in play. It's it's a hallmark of what he does well, but it seems like on serve and volley points, he's missing tons of returns because well, he, he just knows he needs to hit, he needs to hit it great. And he's from a, he's in an awful court position and he's missing tons of returns. So it's exactly what you said. It looks like a return miss, but it, it's caused by by the forward pressure. Definitely not an unforced error when he misses no. something like that. He um he is definitely kind of being pressed because now the net's in play. I mean, if I know if you know if you know the guy is never serving and volleying, you should never miss a return. Certainly never miss a return into the net. Yeah. Right. I mean, you got you got all this here, but once the once the guy starts coming to net, you got to get the return down more, and all this other stuff, and the width of the court, and all these things, and it kind of yeah it presses on you.
And then just on Medvedev's side of the ball, when he was serving, you know, on the surface, it seems like he had a decent serving night. Um, but I, I saw that his winning percentage on second serve was only 38%. So uh, he played 37 points on his second serve, and he only won 14 of those. So, so Novak returned his second serve just amazingly. It, it's been a vulnerable part of Daniil's game. I mean, 10 double faults against Alcaraz, a lot of them came at times where he ended up winning the games anyway, so it didn't cost him. But uh, I think it's definitely a plan also right now to to stand really close and rush Daniil off the second serve, make him feel the pressure. He He's throwing in double faults. But Alcaraz early on in the semifinal, he was missing a lot of those attacking second serve returns. And I just think it's an area... Where, where Novak, when he's trying to take the ball really, really early, he tends to do it, especially on the return, he tends to do it better than Carlos. So Medvedev double-faulted 10 times against Alcaraz and still won half his second serve points. Well, And he I... double-faulted six times in this match, I believe, and won 38% of his second serve points. Yeah. Well, I think the philosophy of the second serve return is very different for Novak than Carlos. I think Alcaraz is, he's calibrating, he's working, but he, he's trying to get a lot of yardage on that second serve return line. He, he wants to, you know, and I think Novak wants to get a properly good deep ball. It's a little bit more transitional. And I think, you know, Alcaraz, Alcaraz likes to, I, I don't see more. It's just his, his concept of what his second serve return is, is, is a dynamic, it's very dynamic. It's, Novak's is too, but it's a different kind of way. It's more nuanced. It's like, it's going to be deep. It's going to be hard. It's going to be well-placed. But it's going to be it's 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 rarely meant to be a winner or set up an approach. You know, or he's not going to come to net on it. Right. Yeah. Usually it's just deep middle, a little bit. You know, med. You, you get kind of rushed right. on it, and right. and then Novak on the the fourth shot of the rally usually gets to take a pretty nice cut at the ball as a result. Well, he just smothers you. You just don't feel. I think if a guy like Novak returns deep middle off of ball, his ball, okay, now where do I go? You know, it's already you're already feeling. This kind of this kind of pressure. Novak also sliced his backhand a ton, and he mixed up his speeds a lot from the baseline. Uh, at least much better than Alcaraz, who who was kind of playing fast, 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 hitting the ball hard at Medvedev. And and with Novak, it's there is a really good mix, and he keeps the ball lower naturally. So Medvedev was also more erratic from the baseline. I also thought that that was, and I was thinking to myself, okay, why was it a little bit different here? Why isn't Medvedev striking the ball as cleanly when he's trying to be offensive from the baseline? And I think it had a lot to do with Novak playing a lot of slower balls and keeping the ball lower. That was my read on kind of Daniil, especially in the first set, just missing a little bit more than we've seen him throughout the tournament. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, look, that court is indoor, kind of a, I've, I've told several sources, tell me it's fairly slow. It was, must have been like a sauna in there at times and the points just going on. I think Novak's like, okay, you want to do it this way? All right, I'm Novak. And and what have you got? And my forehand's better than yours, by the way. Your backhand's pretty good too, but my back and it's like it's a little bit. I wasn't sure who was who was the cat and who was the mouse at times because you'd see Medvedev would hit these shots sometimes occasionally, he'd lash out a forehand, but then he'd hardly take advantage of it, and Novak would kind of reset. Right. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. It's funny, during the tournament, I saw Medvedev up high. I, I had a seat like way up high where I, I could almost see over. And then I saw him down low in a different match. And the thing that struck me, two things struck me. Um, he does not take advantage when he's got, he's he could be inside the court and he's got the other guy damaged. He just is content to recover back, you know, and and it's really frustrating when you see the that from that aspect. Um, and then down low, uh, I think what struck me is um, just the the backhand, uh, how how amazing it is. But there was one backhand to backhand rally with Novak in particular where Novak got the best of him. And it was like, I think. Medvedev just shook his head afterwards. It was like, okay, he got I, me. That was in the second set tiebreak, right? I believe so. Yeah, that that rally was an example. It was almost, and it was a big point. Daniil was was just giving him the same ball once, twice, a third <laughs> time, a fourth time, and Novak just kept hitting it bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. on his cross court backhand. It was a pretty <laughs> that was a pretty funny point. Uh, Djokovic wins another tiebreak in this match. As I just alluded to, he's four and one in in major final tiebreaks this year. Uh, should we talk about the the set point in the second set real quick? Because because it was was pretty significant. I think that's one of those things where if you don't if you've never played, it can be difficult to understand what that moment is like. Um, Basically, it looks like if you take a screenshot or something, like Daniil played the dumbest shot of all time because down the line was wide open, and if he went down the line, it would have been a passing shot. But what really happened there was Daniil, was Novak got into a 50-50 guess one way or the other situation, Mm -hmm. and he guessed cross, and guessing cross looked like well, not recovering towards the line and just staying where he was. So instead of moving to his right, which Daniil, which Daniil anticipated he would, like Medvedev's intention was to hit a cross-court pass behind Djokovic. But Djokovic just stood there, so there was no behind to be had. That, so, uh, you know, people were kind of hating on Medvedev a little bit for the, for the shot. I, I think it's good anticipation. It happens. Like, it's a 50-50 play. Do you guys see the point like that, or, or do you I think, think Medvedev made a real mistake? Great. And, and Gil, since you also have a, have a two-handed backhand, and if, you know, you, you might see, you'd see, you'd get, you'd see that visually a little different than a lefty like me or a one-hander like Amy. Not that we're them. Don't, I'm not saying that. But, yeah, I kind of see what you mean. It's kind of like a double psych out. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah. I'm thinking this, he's thinking that, I'm going there, he knows me, I know him. So it's kind of like, yeah, and then of course you look in retrospect. You want to say, just hit the shot that's right there. But and that's not easy. It's not so easy. On the other hand, if Novak, if Novak goes where he's supposed to go, which is to cover the line, Medvedev whips a cross court and he looks like a genius, doesn't he? So, and and the cross court passing shots have a lot going for them. So, 
It's also, and it's so fast. So fast. I thought that's really good analysis. It's kind of the game within the game. And, and I, I do have that happen to me when I'm playing somebody that I've played many, many, many times before, and I know her tendencies and I know she's going to go down the line here. So then I start to think to myself, you know, let's, let's get ahead of her. But um, I also thought that, you know, McEnroe was saying on the telecast, why didn't he just go down the line? I thought that the the position that Dan, that Daniel was in was a little more defensive than people realize. And defense goes cross if you have a choice. So just to make it seem like, oh, he should just go down the line. It's that easy. Um, it's not that easy. He wasn't, and that was your point, he wasn't quite as in control. He didn't quite have the passing shot option that we like to think. It's not like here it sat and he had the option. He was ready to line it up. He was kind of in the move. And see, again, though, all of this points to Medvedev's lack of comfort, be it as a volleyer or as a passing shot guy or as an anything guy in the front part of the court. You know, if you if you, if you you look to those neighborhoods, like to him, that's like, a, like the way he deals, the way he even handles drop shots, he's fast enough to run them down. But it's always know quite what to do with them the way Novak has become quite expert. I'll, I'll shove this one down the line. He like Novak likes to hit his foreign cross court when he runs in for a drop or just, just to cover and move and maintain his balance and position. I can just see so many times Medvedev is this, you know, he's a, he's a longstanding defender. He's won a lot of matches playing what he sees as kind of defense. That's how he beats his Rublevs. You know, Alcaraz is a little different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he dominated Alcaraz by by serving much, much better, and he was more consistent from the back of the court. Uh, I I thought, you know, there were some there was some serve and volley failure for Alcaraz in the fourth set uh, a little bit, and he needed that little bit, and he got the break of serve. But there wasn't a whole lot of serve and volley failure from Alcaraz. It was mostly it was mostly very, very successful, and it wasn't the reason Alcaraz lost the match. Um, Let's address kind of that semifinal because it was looking like, just considering the the way the last two Alcaraz-Medvedev meetings had gone, uh, there was some kind of gearing up for round three at a major of, of Djokovic-Alcaraz, and, and it didn't happen. No, Medvedev proved he's quite, quite persistent and quite astute to play. Um, that first set tiebreak really shook things. I mean, Alcarez played four pretty strange points that he even admitted he kind of lost his way on. And then that kind of put something over on him because then he rapidly lost the second set. And then from there, Medvedev, I think, had a certain kind of comfort. He's in the match and he's serving well. That is one of the things. I mean, a, a defender like that with a big serve, that, that can be tricky. But uh, I was very surprised by that outcome. I don't like making predictions, but I was surprised by that. I, I hope that no one gets mad at me for saying I wish Alcaraz had won that match because I think the final would have been much more entertaining. Um, I think your analysis skill is good that it was a lot of one note um, kind of power from Alcaraz and in terms of what he was doing from the baseline as opposed to what Novak did, was, which was more variation. And Daniel said after the match that he was in the zone. And that was kind of, I mean, anyone who's ever played any sport, not just tennis, has probably had that feeling before where 
you're not even thinking. It's just very, everything's coming easy. You're playing very free. And then I thought, well, that's not good if Daniil has identified himself as being in the zone in that match because you cannot, it's elusive. It's like trying to hold water. You cannot predetermine being in the zone. So if he was in the zone for that match, he probably wasn't going to be for, for the final. That, that's actually interesting because he was also saying that I played a 12 out of 10 level. And then he said against Novak, I need to play a 15 out of 10. So, you know, it's just words, but... If, that's why I like writing about sports. You know, yeah. I remember a few years ago, someone said to me, well, Roger said this. Yeah, he said it. And that's the thing. That's why, that's why I try not to cover sports like politics or politics like sports. You know, politics gets concerned with these polls, which are like scores. I was like, in politics, they play the score of the polls says this, the opinion polls, and it's all words upon words. The great thing about sports is, yeah, they say all sort of, you got to play a 12 out of a 10, 15 out of 10. I mean, Medvedev is very facile and it makes some kind of funny engaging, but it doesn't, it confers little meaning. He's you know, one of my, that. yeah. Well, in, in the words department, Daniil is, is unmatched. Um, yeah. One of the best, one of the best interviews, if not the best interview, in my opinion. Uh, what about the other semifinal? Let's talk Djokovic Shelton, straight setter Joel. Uh, ben with a very surprising run, uh, considering he hadn't won back to back matches since the Australian Open. And then it was okay. Uh, here's your here's your ultimate test here, thrown into the fire. How do you think uh how do you think Ben fared and where do you think Novak found advantages? I think of the first two sets, I was a little surprised that Shelton was kind of tight and sluggish i thought he would know you know the pre shelton thinking would be hey it's like this is like alcaraz and that woman found this is the greatest day of my life i'm 20 years old i'm at 21 however old, i forget how old ben is um in the semis of the u.s open got nothing to lose throw in give it my go but i thought he was kind of a little sloppy and off and i think novak just kind of okay young man i i i, I can take your measure you're you're not you're you're not even there yet i remember i, I have played carlos he's He's the head of your freshman cohort, cohort, you know, <laughs> I'm, you're okay. And then the third set, things got a little interesting, but I thought Ben, it was still kind of like up and down, you know, it's like learning how to like learning how to drive or something easy, steady. And I think Novak just knew, okay. All right. Okay. And Sheldon, I think he was a little, little sluggish and tight on the movement front. Well, that's, that's who Ben is at this point, up and down, up and down, up and down, spectacular, awful, spectacular, awful, uh, which is, which is okay. I mean, it's been very entertaining and obviously, I mean, you look at the Tiafo third set tiebreak, for example, with Shelton, he double faulted back to back and then hit the best return of the tournament. And that kind of is him in a nutshell. Yeah. And so I think against Novak, he just, he just can't, there, yeah. there's no real margin for that kind of stuff. You know, you just, but I love Ben Shelton. And I think it's like a little bit like uh, Alcarez, Holger Runa. I mean, these guys, these guys bring a lot of excitement and they're, they're trying to answer the questions that have been posed by the big three about how am I going to build points here? I mean, look at the way Shelton plays. He can serve, he can volley, he ground strokes, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but semis the open pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and certainly it was a sharp contrast to Novak, whose return I thought stood out. Ben, I think, had some serving issues with spots and variation and, and maybe even a shoulder issue that was preventing him from really bringing the 130 every time. But ultimately, Novak's return completely swallowed him up. Um, there was some bad blood going on. You know, Shelton is a is a 
different kind of character with the way he uh, carries himself on court. It's it's very typical, like what what you'll see in college tennis. Everybody's doing it in college tennis, and usually in the pros you don't do it. But Ben Ben is still you know being that way, very energetic celebrations. Uh, and then I, I guess Novak probably didn't appreciate it because he he took the hang up the phone celebration. The handshake was was icy, which is very rare for Novak. Amy, what did you make of uh, the tension in that match? Well, first of all, we don't hang up phones like that anymore. We touch a button yeah. on our phone. Somebody pulled up a video of Fabio Fonini now going really putting the, <laughs> the hang up down. It's like. When's the last time someone hung up a phone? Um, your answer. <laughs> um, so when I first saw it, uh, my my reaction was, I don't like that. Just because Shelton is only 20 years old and Novak is 36 and Shelton is closer in age to Novak's son, Stefan, than Shelton is to Novak. So it's almost like, come on, Novak, be more like a dad, teach this young man. But then I discussed it with my son, who's 13, and my son loved what Novak did. And it, it he, he explained why and it just kind of made me think like of all the, I don't know why, but all the NBA guys that I've loved over the years, like Jordan and Magic Johnson and Dikembe Mutombo and some of the stuff that he's done. And it's like, Amy, why would you love it in the NBA, but not like it here? And then I listened to Ben Shelton's answer and he was fine with it. So, um, I guess after talking to my son and really thinking about it, I actually lightened up and thought it was funny. Hasn't your son liked Novak for a while? He likes Novak. Um, His favorite player is Casper Rude. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, hey, look, but I think when you're, uh, you know, you build affinities with different people at different times. That's why I asked if your son liked Novak because maybe he'd built a affinity for the experienced player over he might he might even though your son's 13 he might see shelton as a punk you know as a young as a young guy you know who's this young kid coming along thinking he can he can act that way towards the great novak yeah it was definitely it was a little strange I, it was a little strange because i i would have thought novak would have given him a little bit more like all right welcome to the big leagues you're semi you're a nice player you know maybe we'll practice next time you're in monte carlo yeah i mean what did look- you think gil the only thing that so first of all i was caught off guard because i've watched ben shelton all year long and this is just what he does like every match there's no disrespect to novak there's no disrespect to france he loves francis they're like really they're they're pals uh it's just just what he does so i was just really caught off guard by by novak being upset with it because i didn't think novak would care about it at all uh that said considering Novak, it, it did rub him the wrong way. Uh, in that case, yeah, he should absolutely uh, do what he did and give the celebration right back. I mean, it's funny because I think the the way to respond, at least for me, if somebody who who I'm playing is celebrating and yelling every point, and I've seen I've seen this happen in pro matches as well, the response is just to do it back, right? Like, that's how I think that's a healthy way to compartmentalize it. Like, oh, 
you're going to come on after every point. I'll do it too. How you like that? That's one approach. It doesn't that's, have to be. Approached. It's no, approach. no, that's one approach. You're right. It's, it's not, <laughs> it's not the approach, but it's one approach. And uh, that would be my approach. So I think Novak was like, you're going to do it. I'm going to do it. Another, another approach is the Michelle Obama approach, which is they go low, you go high, you know? Um, and I, I was, I don't know, part of me because Novak is, you know, the, the all time champ. Yeah. Uh, part of me was like expecting him to do that, but that's not really fair. Cause that's not necessarily his personality. And then mixed with all this, the discussions where my, my son, who's a very good boy, loved Novak's deal. Um, mixed with all this was some old clips of Roger Federer, like, you know, circa 2009, um, some post-match interviews where he said some very unsporting things like sour grapes and and it's like okay don't forget that these people are human beings and don't expect perfection and don't um project certain saintly things onto these athletes because that's not fair and they, so they will act in certain kind of ways because they're athletes and they're doing their thing and Sheldon isn't meant to stay Sheldon's not thinking I'm showing him up Sheldon's just thinking I'm I'm extending my life from college tennis into the big leagues I'm seamlessly have on-court coaching you know Sheldon has probably one of the narrowest narrowest gaps in a player's career between coaching in college and now coaching in the pros you know so it's all it's all one big dual match for him now so um uh yeah it's interesting I suspect it won't mean anything the next time I play I liked that right. it got it got people talking, you know, uh, in this sport. I mean, and we have a talk show, so we know a lot of the things we talk about is is very, very technical. And, and we love that. But it's not a mainstream conversation that that we get to have here. But I think Shelton hanging up the phone, Djokovic hanging up the phone, like that's kind of a mainstream conversation. It's very rare in the sport that that these kinds of discussions kind of penetrate and like my my uh, group chat that I have with my friends might be like, whoa, like, did you see that? That's very rare. So I appreciated that aspect of it. Yeah, we're not gonna, it's gonna be different than our talk about pronating after the Vienna semis, right? Uh, we're right. about pronating and, and footwork. Well, look, this is, these, these are the majors and these are times of the year when tennis has this chance to kind of cross over into broader consciousness, more so from the, in America from the US Open, you know, Wimbledon is its own thing to England. And even in America, we we maintain a respect to some degree where, okay, it's our slam. It's New York. It's the New York Post. It's page six. It's um, it's a it's a New York tabloid guy, right? Noticing that it's it's hitting a talk show. It's yeah, it's that kind of stuff. That's right. For what it's worth. I'm gonna put you on the spot here, um, Joel, first because I want to avoid kind of going forward um, and talking about what's next for Novak. We'll do it on another show. But in terms of the first week of the U.S. Open, was there something, just because we weren't doing shows, I want to go back here, was there something that was very memorable for you or something that you covered that that kind of sticks out? And it, it could be Novak-related, but I also suppose it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. Anything that happened in the first week? Well, when Novak went down two sets to love, I remember thinking, well, okay, okay, so he's got a 40% chance to lose. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Novak down two sets to love is like, all right, particularly against someone who isn't that big a server. It's kind of like, okay, 
all right, we're going to be fine here. Just it's going to take a while, but he's just going to toothpick by toothpick. But I was more, um, I was more engaged sometimes by some of the women's matches than the men's matches in the first week. I was really struck by the Coco Golf Laura Siegemund match. Uh, which was a first round match for Coco Golf, and now when I look back on Golf's run, which was so eventful, everything that happened, including like the protester who glued his feet to the cement and all that but when you go back to that first round match how laura who who qualified very valiantly for this tournament was really slow playing and getting away with it and coco went to the chair umpire and said look this is not right you know i rarely she said something to the effect i rarely protest like this but i have to say something here um, and then how she handled that, she dropped a set, but she won the match. Uh, that to me was incredibly memorable. And then everything that happened after for her, um, I'll never forget this tournament, uh, for Coco Golf. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great one. I mean, yesterday after the, it, it was, it was one of the more emotional major title moments that I can remember. I think family was so close. I think we've seen Coco kind of grow up as a teenager a little bit more so than some of these, these others who don't really grow up in the spotlight quite as much. So, so yeah, that was, that was awesome. Um, you know, I think back like, okay, what was a five setter that we had a little bit like later on in the, in the tournament that, that was very memorable. And, uh, I guess Medvedev Sinner, I've never ever seen a match where both players are struggling physically for so long at the same time. And like they're both, they're playing a tennis match and it's like from the second set forward, like for three hours, they were out there just suffering. And uh, it, it ended up going five. It was, uh, I did mean, I mean, it's Zverev Sinner. I don't know what I, what I ended up saying, but uh yeah, that that's Zverev Center match was a very unique match. I wouldn't call it a classic quality wise, but it was one of a kind in in the sense that it was just played in a swamp, and both players were were basically dead as a result. It was a mini redemptive effort for Zverev because you know yeah. it's like that shows that he's this year he's recovered nicely from his um, from the injury last year. Semis of Roland Garros, quarters here, a win over Sinner, who's younger than him, to kind of say, hey. I'm still a guy, but yeah, that was a, that was almost more like a clay court match on a hard court. I mean, those guys were just totally. grinding through it. And uh, yeah, no, I don't think, I think it was more uh, an open of sensations and significance more than a lot of spectacular tennis. Last year, there's some spectacular tennis, a number of the Tiafo matches, some of the Alcarez matches. This year, I think it was more just the significance of both winners who emerged. Novak, you know, more pages, more history. 24 slams, Coco, her first, that was more what this open was about, about the significance of these, of these title winners. And the event every year I'm back just feels bigger and more crowded, which has its positives and negatives, but you know, the, the energy remains so high and they continue to kind of raise the bar. So, I mean, I, I don't mean to shill for my home tournament, my favorite <laughs> tournament, but you know, it is the truth. I'm not just saying that. So, uh, so that was wonderful. Novak Djokovic wins his 24th major. And uh, now we have 
what should be a pretty interesting fall season ahead of us. Always some some unpredictability involved. And uh, we'll have a race to race to number one. I mean, it's close between Alcaraz and Djokovic. I'm sure we'll talk about that in the near future. That'll be that'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.